Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Have you ever admired a piece of pottery or maybe some tile work? And then you got a little sad and thought, this artist left us such beauty and yet nobody knows their name. Well, this is the History Author Show. I am your host, Dean Carianis, and I welcome you here to find those kinds of people who have been lost to the mists of time. Today, piloting our time machine will be Bob Batchelor. He brings us this beautiful illustrated history. It's titled Rookwood, the rediscovery and revival of an American icon. Once we step out of our time machine to 1880, we'll be in Cincinnati and we will meet Mariah Longworth Nichols Storer. She was an amazing woman who defied the notions of what she should be doing in the Gilded Age and also of her class to bring pottery and ceramics to the United States for the very first time. And incredibly, that company is still a growing concern today. And you think of all they had to overcome, economic pressure, wars, panics in the oil market, so many things to still be going strong. And by the way, to still be owned by a woman and be a predominantly female workforce. So this is really an interesting story of something that thrives, that became a worldwide sensation and really a can-do attitude. And the book is just beautiful, by the way. I love Bob Batchelor's work, how deep and detailed it is, and yet interesting and holds us all the way through from the first page to the last. It is, by the way, a Publishers Weekly Holiday Gift Guide 2020 selection. So if you're looking for a gift, pick up Rookwood, or I have a couple of Bob's other books here that I chatted with him about. You can find those conversations in our archives. They are The Bourbon King, The Life and Crimes of George Remus, Prohibition's Evil Genius. And the other book is right up here. I read that one on a digital copy. It's titled Stan Lee, The Man Behind Marvel. While I was in the attic looking up comics, I brought down this fellow, who I'm gonna discuss with Bob. For those of you who are watching on the YouTube channel, you can see him, but those of you who aren't, he's in his little Muppet News outfit. He has his Peter Jennings trench coat and a Muppet News press pass and the band of his hat. And he's got his microphone. He's all ready for his stand-up live. He's just a fun thing. And as I talk with Bob about, he doesn't have to be one of the thousand dollar or tens of thousands of dollar pieces that Rookwood does have to offer. He's $9.99 on eBay. And Bob says, even the simple pieces at Rookwood bring him joy. So I decided to go up in the attic and dig him out. Now, Stan Lee, the man behind Marvel, made me get down some of my Marvel comics because I thought, hey, people will want to see what... That's right. I can hear those of you yelling, it's Superman. That's not Marvel. That's DC. I know. Some of you are in your 60s and you're still screaming about comics, but... I love you all, so I will talk a little bit about comics at the end of this episode after I chat with Bob, because they say, if you want to be popular on YouTube, talk about comics. So I'll flip through a few of those. By the way, you can visit Bob Batchelor at bobbatchelor.com and follow him through all his social media accounts through there. He's a popular culture and American literature author. He has written or edited two dozen books. He's written on John Updike, The Great Gatsby, and Mad Men. He lives in Cincinnati, and he teaches at Miami University. Okay, now that we've picked out those lumps of clay, now that I've introduced you to tiny Kermit the Frog, let's sit down at our pottery wheels with Bob Batchelor to discover the hidden history of a Cincinnati legend. 
The year is 1880, and the name of the place is Rookwood. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. I'm joined on the line by Bob Batchelor. He's the author of Rookwood, the rediscovery and revival of an American icon. It's an illustrated history. Welcome back to the History Author Show, Bob. Thanks, Dean. Really happy to be here. Well, I'm always happy when I get a book and it says Bob Batchelor on the cover. I was really happy that you emailed me and you said, I have a new book out. And my first thought is, how does he crank out such quality in such a quick and rapid fashion and go do the interviews, do the research, talk to the people, write and edit. But you do just a great job of that. So I'm always happy when I am going to read a book of yours and then have the opportunity to speak to you. In this case, it's yet again something that you don't think about, that you might not have ever known a story, and yet it's so interesting about this pottery innovator and this company, Rookwood, that still exists today. And it's an illustrated history to boot. When you think of pottery, you think of beauty, you think of art. So how did you come to this idea after your previous two books? One is right there on the shelf behind me, uh, George Remus, uh, the famous bootlegger or infamous, I guess we would say. Before that was Stan the Man Lee of Marvel Comics fame. How did you get here to tell the story of a lady who was a pottery innovator right there in your own backyard in Cincinnati? Well, thanks, Dean, for all those kind words. I think there's a through line running through all this, and it's my role as a cultural historian. So I like to take big stories that influence a lot of people, and perhaps on the other end of the spectrum, a person who has been lost to history or maybe isn't as remembered as they should be and bring that back to life. So what I found with Stan Lee was that even though everybody in the world knows Stan the man, of course, they would cheer for him in, in movie cameos. It was great. But if you ask somebody, so what do you know about Stan Lee? It'd be next to nothing. So I thought this guy certainly needs a biography. And, and so that's how that one came about. With George Remus, almost the same story. A Cincinnati legend, infamous bootleg king of the early 1920s. People around Cincinnati hadn't heard of him, let alone people nationally. So with the 100th anniversary of prohibition, I thought, well, this is the time where Remus's story really needs to be told. With Rookwood, there were a couple different ways that I came to the company. One, I've always been a pottery fan. I'm an art fan in general. So I knew about Rookwood. And then Remus in his home, in his grand mansion that he had, he had a $175,000 pool built in 1920. And that's 1920 money. So it'd be upwards of 2 million today. The pool was lined in Rookwood tile. And then Remus bought a building in downtown Cincinnati, which is now part of the Bengals stadium parking. But that building had Remus's name outlined in Rookwood tile because Rookwood really was this high luxury product in this era. So when I started talking to people more about Rookwood and I found that they didn't know the full story, certainly didn't know Mariah Longworth Storer's story, I thought this is ripe for retelling. It's an important story that people need to know. It must have been a real challenge, though, to go in and here you're dealing with all this 
time, all these pottery, all this, all this 140 years of history right in your own backyard with Rookwood. So that could be daunting. And for me, when I look at the cover design, and you have the book there with us, if you want to hold it up, you have it there with you, right? In your office, I would assume it's your, <laughs> it's nice to have books. You're able to have your own book right there. See? So how do you choose those pieces for the cover and then what's going to go into the book and the design, or is that something the publisher takes off your hands? No, believe it or not, soup to nuts, it's the author's job. Hmm. And so I would say first, I was really able to benefit from a team of people. And without that team of people, I could have never created such a beautiful coffee table book. My wife, Suzette Percival, is a art fanatic and used to be the marketing director at Rookwood. Uh, our friend Beth Johnson designed the cover. She used to be the art director at Rookwood. The Rookwood photographer who took that photo, Tracy Doyle. So we had a team of people at Rookwood because it's their 140th anniversary and it's so important to them. They wanted it to be truly representative of the past. And then my real secret key was that two of the top auction appraisers and, and Rookwood appraisers in the world were willing to open up their archives to me hmm. and let me take and use their photos really of auction catalogs over the years. First was Riley Humler, who used to have his own auction house, but he just became the ceramics director at Toomey in Chicago, which is one of the big art auction dealers in America. The second is Dave Rego, who runs Rego Auction House in Lambertville in Chicago. He also just opened, opened his archive to me and was the, both men, both Riley and Dave were so generous because nobody's collecting these photographs. It, it's really where they come from. Even Rookwood didn't have a collection of pieces that have been sold over mm. the years. So it really was a team effort. And there are 300, maybe a couple more, 300 images, advertisements, art pieces, maps, all kinds of illustrations. Of course, hundreds of pictures of beautiful pottery and tile. But we could have done 10 books with the amount of great Rookwood out there in the world. So we ha really had to whittle it down. I think my final count was I had about 965 images. <laughs> wow. And I had to whittle that to 300. So to go from 900 to 500 was tough. To go to from 500 to 300 was nearly impossible. But yeah, so it's, it's quite an undertaking. And, and the writing part's interesting because in a coffee table book, unlike The Bourbon King, uh, which thankfully viewers can see over your shoulder there, <laughs> you have a word limit. That's, right, right now, that's something a lot of people don't think about. Yeah. Every book has a word limit. But when you do an illustrated book, it's more like um, almost you have X number of words per page and you have to write to the page. So it's a different kind of writing. So I'm very proud of the storytelling that I was able to pull off in the book. Not only the narrative, but then I have 25 sidebars of interesting stories about uh, celebrities and about artists and, and some of the individual points in the history, because I thought if readers are just leafing through this, they're gonna really dig a, a two, one or two page sidebar that really highlights something interesting. Yeah, I read through the book and I think of that exact thing, the editing. The editing is the difference between, if you look at this real thick book there, I think that's James Monroe over my head or one of those real thick early presidential bios. 
And you think, you know, maybe you could have knocked 200 pages out of it to get people to read it who aren't obsessed with presidents like I am, or you know, want to really read it. And, you know, there's a discipline to it. And that's something about a good book is it defeats attempts at skimming is the way that I always put it. If I say, well, wait a minute, I, I don't want to skim that. I want to go back up. I want to scroll up if I'm reading on a PDF. I don't want to miss anything or if something distracts me, I'll go back to it. And with Rookwood, when I was reading that, I felt that it didn't just lean on the pictures. The pictures are beautiful. So it would have been easy to just have this be a picture book. And there's a reason that we say picture book and we're a little bit snobby and dismissive of it because it doesn't sound like really any work went into it. And that's not the case here with Rookwood. You pick that up and I could see people picking it up off a coffee table, say if they're being interviewed or they're at someone's house and really getting engrossed by it and then deciding, oh, well, wait a minute, you're, you're calling me to dinner or you're trying to speak to me. And it, it really is that engrossing and enjoyable because it tells a story of 140 years worth of history. And also for me, someone who's interested in how people lived, for instance, People watch Downton Abbey, right? You think of that. You think of the historic homes you have there around you in Cincinnati and in Ohio. You had a piece of pottery. It wasn't just to put it on the mantelpiece and put it on your bookshelf and decide you were going to have everyone come over and admire it and tell them about it. It also served a functional role. And it also served a role for the people that were producing it that said, I want to try and adapt and innovate. And we're going to talk about that and about, and you talk about it in Rookwood, certainly. So how does it evolve over time? How has Rookwood changed with the times, with the needs people have, with the things that they want to see in art so that they would be able to give customers things that they wanted, but still fulfill their artistic vision? Yeah, that's a great question and a very interesting point. Rookwood is founded as a pottery studio, basically making art pottery. But the important thing is, from the start, it's also established as a factory. So this is in an era in 1880 when it's founded. There's no home decor, very little home decor. There's no, um, it's very difficult to get everyday wear, even to serve your family and things like this. It's not that you couldn't run out to Target and get this kind of stuff. <laughs> and you certainly couldn't get quality stuff when you, when you could buy it. Wealthy people imported it from France or Asia or England primarily. So Rookwood had this dual purpose from the start to make art pottery and also to make daily wear. So when the first kiln is drawn on November 27, 1880, there are pieces that are meant for museums and kind of high art. And there are also daily wear, you know, uh, gravy uh, bowls and, and pitchers and things like that, even things like umbrella stands, these things in the 1880s that people needed for their house. So I think people that like home decor, interior design would really dig the book because Rookwood had an important role in not only determining what was everyday wear and quality everyday wear, but also how people would bring art into the home. There was a huge movement in the late part of the 19th century that people began to realize if you have beauty in your day-to-day -day life, you will live a healthier life. Not only mentally healthier, but physically healthier if you surround yourself with beauty. And this is when American art starts to form. And so one form of American art is painting and another form of art is pottery. And Rookwood is really the leader there. They become soon the most important pottery 
in America and one of the most important potteries, if not the most important pottery in the world. So it's really a, a fascinating story. Rookwood continues to evolve with the times. And if I lined up 20 pieces, basically, that took you from 1880 to 1930, I could show you a piece from 1920 before Art Deco is really even a thing. And Rookwood artists are already creating pieces that hint to Art Deco. So they were able to hire artists who had their pulse on what people liked. And in many cases, they jumped ahead. So Rookwood had a artist in the 1930s who was considered, he was called Rookwood's Picasso. His name was Jens Jensen. <laughs> I could show you pictures that, uh, and photos of what Jensen did. Absolutely amazing, Picasso-like. He actually supersedes Picasso, and Picasso later starts doing ceramics. And so it's really an interesting, what Rookwood was able to do from the beginning, and that's under the leadership of Mariah Longworth Storer and the president of the company, William Watts Taylor, is hire the very best artists they can find and kind of give them the freedom because they were making production pieces to sell, to make, to make money. And then the artist had some leeway on the artistic pieces they were making. So it's constantly changing over time. It's interesting when you say they're putting things in the home for art and it's something I guess we take for granted. And as you were speaking, I thought even when we get that first college dorm room, if we go away to school and it's, the size of 10 by eight, or it's really tiny. Still, you're going to put something on the wall. Still, you're going to have, I have my little Kermit the Frog. He's a, he's a reporter cup. This is from the seventies. And I brought that to college with me. He has the hat. He has a little news thing, Muppet news. It's pottery actually. So it's, it's very fitting that when we're talking about Rookwood to say how it becomes part of our lives, this book, you pick it up and you realize that's where these things came from. And I could see picking up and looking around the room that I was in and realizing that this is the legacy. I have right here a mug. It looks all whited out there, obviously the white balance, but that's because the William McKinley Presidential Library seal has washed off it. So in my head, I was thinking, I'm speaking to you. You're in Cincinnati. There's a little bit of, of Ohio history, one of Ohio's presidents, but it's the most pottery we may buy otherwise is this mug. And that gives you an idea of where it would have started, where you would say, oh, I'm proud of this mug. I and mean, I love this mug because I, I love McKinley. I like going there and I have a bunch of historic mugs. And so that was what was part of your life. But then you pick up Rookwood and then you go look on eBay as I did. Some of these are worth several thousand dollars. And I imagine that listeners and readers of Rookwood will pick up the book and then immediately go home or you go over your Yaya's house, you know, grandma, and you start looking at the bottom and you say, well, hey, is, is this worth anything? You, you want to be careful with it. I know in my grandmother's house, she had this uh, candy dish that had a squirrel on top. And, uh, and I thought, I, I grew up seeing it my whole life. So to me, I thought it must have had sentimental value at the very least. And so I made sure to preserve it after she moved down to Florida. And when she passed away at 104, I brought it home to my mother. And I said, well, I, I wanted to make sure that this didn't get damaged or thrown away or anything. And she said, oh, she never liked that. Anyway, that's nothing. Just get rid of it. <laughs> but it was, and I kind of wish I'd saved it now just for the, for the camp purposes of it. But you know what you like. And especially when you're younger, I guess your tastes evolve a little bit as a squirrel candy dish where the top comes off. Seemed very cool in those days. But before we go looking underneath those vases and we start picking up things at garage sales, 
what's your advice for identifying and buying a Rookwood? And I would say if you want beauty in your home, of course, the easiest thing to do is pick up your book, pick up Rookwood and put it right there on the coffee table and get an idea of that beauty, bring it into your house. But if someone's looking to buy or they have a piece and they want to play Antiques Roadshow at home, what should they do? Well, that's interesting because both Riley Humler and Dave Rego are, are appraisers on Antiques Roadshow. Uh-huh. So if your viewers or listeners have ever watched Antiques Roadshow, they'll be familiar with those names. With Rookwood, you can start and you see it on the cover of the book. This is the Rookwood logo. Uh-huh. And that is on the bottom okay. of 90% of the pieces of Rookwood. Hmm. And Each little flame has a significance, and the way that you date it is by looking at the bottom for that little reverse symbol. If it's a production piece, it's not signed by an artist, but if it's an art piece, like by Sarah Sachs or Kataro Shira Yamadani, they all had very unique ciphers, is what it's called. So it is like a holy grail to find a piece of Rookwood in the attic or at a yard sale The internet, as it's done with everything collectible, has kind of made it crazy. It's very hard to find Rookwood now at a cheap cost because everybody knows something. Because all you have to do is type in Rookwood and you could see thousands of pictures and you can look it up. There are apps people have for their phones that'll tell them how much pieces of Rookwood cost, things like that. But that mark is usually the indicator. And people still, I'm on a Facebook group with 25,000 Rookwood fanatic collectors and somebody found, I think maybe out West or in the upper middle West, a piece of Rookwood at Goodwill for $5. And it was certainly a piece worth thousands. Wow! And so it's still possible. The very best artists, their work can be sold for tens of thousands of dollars. And I have, uh, I'm lucky, uh, Riley Humler, not only gave me access to his, you know, lifetime archive of Rookwood photos, but he wrote some of the sidebars in the book. And so when somebody picks up the book, if you want to know the story of the most expensive piece of American art pottery ever sold, Riley was the auctioneer for that piece, $350,000, a piece by Kitaro Shirayamadani that is partially encased, gilded in a silver structure created by Gorham in Massachusetts, which, you know, is world famous for its silver production. They kind of teamed up in the late 1800s and early 1900s. So lucky also Rookwood has an on-site historian named George Hibben. And so I was able to access his information I went into the famous room in the basement of current day Rookwood and saw all the molds, the molds that they make to use the production, hold those. I held the notebook for the stockholder meetings. So a lot of the Rookwood original archives have been lost over the years, but what's remained, I was able to access. And, you know, I think you'll appreciate this. And I certainly hope that your listeners do as well. My goal is always to apply my professional training as a historian and a literary critic, use that training, but then write a book that is for just an enthusiastic reader. I don't ever want somebody to read my book and say, that sounds like a dissertation or a monograph. I want it to be entertaining. 
with Rookwood, I, I certainly think that it's an entertaining 140 year story. There's a lot of ups and downs. It's like one of those old uh, VH1, v, yeah, VH1 uh, <laughs> behind the music specials. But at the heart of it is Mariah Longworth Nichols Storer, who people don't know. The first woman in United States history to found and run a manufacturing company. Now, there had been other women whose husbands had founded manufacturing companies and the husband died and the wife continued to run it. But even in the 1800s, that was a dicey proposition. But for Mariah, she came from a wealthy family and was able to found this company. And it was really like a high-tech startup for its era. I mean, this was as high-tech as you could get. And Mariah went into it. She, of course, hired great people to help her but she studied the science because clay does weird things when you put paint on it and put it in a kiln. Yeah. Just um, look at my mug, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> it's the the things that it. happen. Exactly. Yeah. And Rookwood from the start, particularly when you're talking about both art pottery, but also the production pieces, Rookwood became famous for the form, which is the size and what the shape looks like. So it's shape. That's the form. Then also the glaze, which is the color. And Rookwood produced colors that nobody could match. And that's how Rookwood goes from being founded in 1880 to at the 1889 World's Fair in Paris, it is given a gold medal, which signifies it as one of the probably top 1% of art potteries in the world. Nine years. You know how important World's Fairs were back then. Yeah, huge. This is the showcase of showcase. And that set in cycle, Rookwood winning the gold medal at every World's Fair they entered deep into the 20th century, because they just became from high-tech startup in 1880, 1889, they win the gold medal, and then they just keep continue winning gold medals because they had figured it out. They had figured how to make glazes that were the best in the world, and they put it on interesting forms. It was magical. It was magical for Cincinnati. It was magical for America. Cincinnati was the Old West in 1880. Cincinnati really was considered a backwash part of the West because that's, <laughs> that's basically where it stopped. You know, there wasn't much going on past there, yeah. even with the gold rush and things. So Cincinnati was considered the West. Cincinnati becomes the queen city of the West. And Rookwood is the reason that Cincinnati gained that moniker. This was the crown jewel. You said something interesting that I didn't want to skip over, and that was the use of silver in the pottery. The early 1900s, the late 1800s, that was when there was the big debate over the free coinage of silver. And I've talked about that before in some of the Gilded Age stories. That, that would be part of the way that they might have incorporated things and, and what people were looking for. It was a big deal if you were a silverite or if you were a gold bug. And this was a, a way to try to, you mentioned the West, that would have been a big deal for, for people out in the West. That's where William Jennings Bryan came from, runs for president three times. That was part of it, I would guess, even though you said that artists didn't, didn't necessarily come from out West of the U.S., but you mentioned there, I didn't want to go much longer without mentioning Mariah Longworth Nichols' store, and that's a mouthful. So I wanted to ask, how did she get those four names? And as a woman at the time, you think that she had any idea that this would be such an enduring success? Well, that's a great question. And the Longworth family, and again, when you're thinking about things people don't know about American history, her grandfather, Nicholas Longworth, 
is considered the father of American wine industry. He was arguably the second richest man in the world during his lifetime, certainly the richest man in America. He dies in 1863. His son inherits his wealth and continues to build out real estate in Cincinnati and becomes a really philanthropic. They found the Cincinnati Art Museum. I mean, the, the Longworth footprint all over, is still all around Cincinnati, maybe even more than the famous Taft family. Hmm. Mariah is able to found the company in 1880 because she had caught the Japanese craze and the pottery craze that came out of the Philadelphia World's Fair. And it's hard to believe now. Japan was considered such a mysterious place that when Japanese art started coming into the United States, it set off a hysteria. I mean, a craze like, I don't know, maybe akin to what happened with the Beatles or something. <laughs> so Mariah decides she's going to found a pottery of her own because she couldn't get local pottery companies to take her seriously because she was a woman. And since she had the means, her father donated a factory along the Ohio River, what was then you know, just outside the city, and she sets up this factory. But she did a two-year internship, basically, professional internship with a local pottery maker to learn the art and craft and science of making pottery. And it's hard to say because Mariah was not a diary keeper. She didn't, a lot of her letters don't talk that much about Rookwood. I mean, she goes off and has this amazing other career as a, the wife of a prominent diplomat. She gets into a major feud with Theodore Roosevelt <laughs> that makes national headlines all over the world. Uh, those are the Longworths, as in yeah. Mrs. L, Alice Longworth. Actually, her name is here somewhere. His, his uh, oldest child and first daughter. She's uh, up there, Alice Roosevelt Longworth. And they called her Mrs. L, the other Washington Monument. So it gives you an idea, yeah. right, of how important she was. And that was, a, uh, that was a split between her and her Longworth relatives when he went and ran third party against the Republicans. Her, her husband had been a congressman for a long while and yep. was even speaker, wasn't he? Yes, so, he was. Yep. Powerful yep. family. Yep. Right up there with WKRP as far as Cincinnati. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. The second, well, maybe even the third, the, the Nicholas Longworth that we're more familiar, you know, the House of Representatives is the Longworth building. He is the nephew of Mariah. Hmm. So yeah, they're, they're very interconnected. She definitely thought that Rookwood had to be both a producer of art and a producer of profit. And that's why those first kilns that she focused also on everyday wear, because she knew that Rookwood had to be a money-making enterprise. Hmm. She couldn't just pay for it herself, or her dad was essentially like an angel investor. I mean, that's why there's some amazing things, probably going back to why I like cultural history. If you apply the context, what you learn from history to historical incidences, you see America's had a lot of Silicon Valleys. Butte, Montana was a Silicon Valley when they were pulling all the copper out of the world. Cincinnati is a Silicon Valley-like place when Mariah starts Rookwood and using the, the greatest technology you know, that, that America has to produce this the best pottery in the world. So she knew that it had to be a money-making enterprise, and that speaks to the longevity. Then she brought in William Watts Taylor, who was a art organizer and leader in Cincinnati, and turned the company eventually over to him 
And through his marketing acumen and his relationship, soon Rookwood's in museums all over the world, and they branch into architectural tile. And I could never prove this, but I saw a newspaper article, I think from around uh, the early 1900s, that said, if you could catalog it, you would find Rookwood in almost every skyscraper in New York City. Now, we, we know where it used to be, and we know yeah. some of the places. Like, you can see Rookwood at Grand Central Station. You can see Rookwood actually in the subway. Certain subway stops have Rookwood tile. Mm. But cataloging all of those pieces over time, that would be incredibly difficult. But Rookwood really is. It's in luxury hotels. It's in cities all over America. It's in museums all over the world. So I think Mariah did realize that this was going to be a long-term corporation and, and that, you know, she had big aspirations for it. It's incredible that she managed to not only do the practical things like tiles, I do some tiling myself and I know how easy it is to break them. I know that people's tastes change. I know that it's hard to get ones that are going to be right. If you, if you pick them up and they were breaking too easily or you didn't like the look of them, you have to store that or you have to do something with it. So to me, it's incredible. I'm, I'm picturing this factory now much bigger than I was when I was reading Rookwood because I, I hadn't thought about the practical side of it, that she's supplying buildings and I'm thinking of the French building in, in New York City. Uh, I used to look out of one of my offices there and see that and it's so high up that now you wonder, why did they put it way up there? Because who was ever going to see it? Well, at the time, that was, there weren't all those skyscrapers around it. So it was quite beautiful. And you talked about how much people were enjoying pottery as art. Somebody in the book describes it as an orgy, this pottery craze. So that's a pretty strong, uh, pretty strong <laughs> image there to think about pottery. And I guess appropriately then, I saw that 1882 picture of Oscar Wilde in there who just was a bon vivant, I guess you'd say, uh, maybe a hedonist will be a better word, and the priest of the beautiful, the high priest of aesthetics. And so I see him in there, and I started to wonder just how far did this craze go if you have somebody of the, of the high stature of somebody like Oscar Wilde or Mark Twain who starts to get really into it. So how does that happen? How do they end up in your book, Rookwood? Yeah, it's a great story. Oscar Wilde, yeah, the high priest of the aesthetic movement. Both Oscar Wilde and Mark Twain were celebrities, really, I think, like celebrities that we couldn't even imagine because celebrity wasn't the same. Bigger than the Rolling Stones, you know, bigger, bigger than the Beatles when um, Oscar Wilde comes through Cincinnati. He didn't like uh, Rookwood at first, which is surprising. Because Mariah was essentially Cincinnati's 1%, celebrities would fight over. And so on one hand, you had Cincinnati leaders and prominent families fighting over who got time with these people, but they would also be very selective about spending time with the Cincinnati folks. And Mariah was at the top of that list. So when Oscar Wilde comes, he, he comes in 1882 and Rookwood in its first two years. Now, this is interesting about Mariah. Not only is she founding the company, she's making pottery herself. And her pottery is very unique. You can almost always tell a Mariah piece because she liked what was called then grotesque. 
grotesques. She would have spiders. <laughs> With Halloween recently passing, I, I, I held a piece of Mariah's pottery that had witches on it, witches on broomsticks, frogs, fish, things like that. And she really liked that kind, which was a style then that, that people really dug. And then there was Japanese influence on top of that. In the very first couple years, Rookwood was still fairly primitive. We would look at it and say, this is fairly primitive stuff. But by the time Mark Twain comes through a couple years later, Rookwood is fully flowering. And they have some of the best artists and some of the best technicians making the pottery in the world. If you looked for particular pieces from the mid to late 1880s and look at the early pieces, you can see that the evolution was straight through the roof. I mean, this was not a gradual evolution. They went from fairly primitive to best in the world over the course of a couple years. So Oscar Wilde didn't like that grotesque form. To him, it should be more ornate and pretty. And so he had some kind of semi-unkind words to say about Mariah, but he still went to tea with her the day after his lecture, and that was in papers all over the region. When Mark Twain comes through, I found in uh, Mark Twain's archives a letter that he wrote back to his wife bragging that he had purchased uh, or been given some Rookwood and he had went out to Mariah's mansion in suburban Cincinnati and had lunch with her and he was over the moon and Mark Twain did not like, he was not an interior design fan. Uh, he hired a company to decorate his mansion there in Hartford. So he wasn't a fan, but Rookwood was one of those things that he was actually really interested in. The magic happened so quickly that people were amazed and nobody thought that, I mean, Cincinnati really, I mean, Cincinnati was growing, it was an important city, but nobody thought art could come from a place like Cincinnati. So whenever Rookwood really started gaining international prominence, everybody that came through Cincinnati wanted to take some magic home with them. And so Rookwood quickly grew into the top tourist attraction in Cincinnati hmm. and stayed that way even through the Great Depression when people couldn't afford to buy things. Uh, national conventions and association meetings would, would have meetings in Cincinnati, which was quite frequently because it was easy to get to from a lot of different places where a lot of people were. They still had tours of, of Rookwood and it was a major tourist destination. They've continued that tradition today. So pre-COVID, Rookwood would have tours, two or three or five tours every weekend, and they would sell out well in advance because it's still, there's something about that spinning wheel. There's something about the process with the way people love craftsmanship and authenticity today. Rookwood still symbolizes that. And so people would love to go on those tours and see all the history and see even how pieces are being made today. So it's kind of surprising. Oscar Wilde, Mark Twain, the King of Belgium, that lineage still carries on now into the 21st century. So it's a pretty amazing thing. I was clicking around while you were speaking, since we have the power to do that here quite a bit past the 1840s and 50s and 60s and 1880, because I wanted to find something that I'd, I'd written down in my notes. And that was 
about the expressions. I have some photos and I hope people will pick up Rookwood and if they do, or if they're hesitating because they, they think it's, it's kind of sterile, you have people in there. And my note was just the expressions of focus and pride and the happiness, the contentment on the faces of the artists that are, that are working those wheels that you were just speaking about. It is just something that when you watch someone and they're enjoying what they're doing, it's just really pleasurable. And when you see a dog walking down the street, right? Golden retrievers often people give them the leash. Golden retrievers are the kind of breed. They like to have a job. They're, they're a working dog, right? They like to have something to do. And you just say, oh, that's nice. He looks so content. And that is a great thing to find in your job. And that seemed to me from the pictures you selected are a common experience for people at Rookwood. That, that's just how it is. They, they seem like they love going to work. I'm sure there's times when it's hot. I'm sure it's a little bit messy, but it just really struck me that those are the expressions, not any of the other ones you could have had serious or what have you. You're not going to, somebody drop something. I'm sure that happens. You weren't going to put that in the book, but still just the, the expressions of pleasure that people were getting the opportunity to, to bring a vision to life, to take the clay and take just this lump, mm -hmm. and probably we've all had that when we were younger and in school, it's just a lump, it's nothing. And then as Michelangelo said, well, I just had to get the other stone out of there. The statue's already inside. <laughs> and these seem like those sorts of people where they knew what was in there. And since you just had mentioned about having touched some of these items, what do you feel in your hands that it was just a piece of pottery maybe to you before, but now when you pick up a, a Rookwood, what do you feel in it and about its history that you wouldn't have felt before you wrote Rookwood? That is a, a wonderful point of observation because my feelings about Rookwood uh, changed and deepened, as a matter of fact. The one tragic point of the book in my mind is that despite that Rookwood artists were having their pieces, even pieces that we would consider second, like, you know, Rookwood has its first tier artists and its second tier artists, just like anybody that makes things that are beautiful. Rookwood's third tier artists have pieces that are being put into museums all over the world because the talent was so deep. I mean, they're wow. like the 1927 Yankees. Yeah. <laughs> so when you look at a piece by one of their top designers, by like Kataro Shira Yamadani or Albert Valentine, Matt Daly, Sarah Sachs. When you hold one of those pieces, the first thing I always feel is this. I say, please, Lord, do not let me drop this piece. <laughs> I bet. Because I, you know, it could be a year's salary to, to pay for this thing. And it's irreplaceable, I bet, right? If exactly. It's that yeah, you far can't... back, you can't ain't making another one of those from exactly. Ex exactly. I don't know if I'd want to touch it, Bob, I have to be honest. The Ocean Township Historical Society, they, they brought out the wicker chair that General yeah. Ulysses S. Grant sat in on his porch. And they said, well, you can sit in it if you like. And I, I have a picture of me just touching. Yeah. And I said, I really don't want the headline in the, in the Ocean Star newspaper or whatever it is to be <laughs> overweight history host crushes priceless presidential artifacts. So I said, you know, so I don't know. I, I'd be afraid I'd <laughs> sneeze or something, but... There you go. You're, that's the part of what you feel. You don't want to drop that. It's important. <laughs> One of the things I was able to do locally is a local historian named Nancy Browerman recently wrote a biography of Marias uh, Longworth Nichols Store, and it was published by the University of Cincinnati Press. It's a, it's a wonderful book. It focuses on Marias' engagement as a political leader more than her 
Rookwood stuff. So it's almost as if the biography and my book are, are twins, like they, they're yin and yang to telling the entire Mariah story. So Nancy works uh, as an archivist at the St. Ursuline Academy. And she and I became friends and she opened up the archive to me. You can go to St. Ursuline and see the Rookwood that they have there because Mariah later in her life became a very devout Catholic practitioner. And her and her husband, Bellamy Storr, had an apartment, a three-story, probably 10,000 square foot apartment built on the back of this academy and had, it was a church and, and now it's a school. So they have all these great Rookwood pieces And we went over there, Tracy Doyle, the photographer, and uh, Beth Johnson, the art director, and we're taking photographs, some of which are in the book. And they're just like handing them to me. What do you think of this one? What do you think of this one? And I got electricity running through my my arms because you can feel the craftsmanship. So it's not just seeing it and the beauty. I think one of the pieces that I'm really proud of in here, the last piece that I've ever seen that Mariah signed is in the book. It's a two page spread and it's the strangest piece and it speaks to what she liked. One side looks like a mountain coming to life and the other side is a sunrise. So it's this beautiful two page spread in the book. Nobody really knew who created that piece. And I was studying it the day we were at St. Ursuline. And I had been looking at some of Mariah's other stuff some of the, the, she did a lot of metal work. I'm looking at that. And I noticed the way she was signing her pieces back to that idea of a cipher artist stamp. And on the side of that piece is her cipher. And nobody had ever really been able to figure it out because it had faded over time. It was under the glaze. So I was able to kind of find this little uh, solve really, this little mystery of this piece. And that's one of the reasons why we put it in the book. It's just uh, such an electric feeling to hold a Rookwood piece. I mean, everybody that falls in love with Rookwood falls in love with certain things. I have friends who are arts and crafts devotees, and they they just fall head over heels in love with pictures of flowers and and these amazing uh, images. I'm more of an art deco guy, so I like I like the patterns that they they're able to put, and and it's amazing. One of the big differences though, between what makes art pottery today and back then is back when Mariah started through really the thirties, they painted almost like we would paint portraits or paint pictures. Uh, They painted on the pottery, which was amazing. And then it's baked. And so you're not just painting like uh, Rookwood has amazing native American portrait art. They're world famous for that you're not painting on a flat surface, you're painting on a rounded surface, and then it's being baked in the kiln. It's, it's phenomenal. Today, it's more about the colors and the shapes. So there's not much interest anymore in people hand painting pottery. So that would be the difference if people were looking just over time, what's the difference between 1880, 1890, 1920, and today's art pottery? But there are still art potters today. And I just spoke to a a very famous pottery maker named Ben Carter the other day. There are potters trying to reproduce what Rookwood does, and they can't do it to this day in the 21st century. That's how far advanced Rookwood was in 
the in 1900 when they win the gold medal at the Paris World Exposition, it was for a glaze called tiger eye. And if you saw a piece of tiger eye up close, it looks like a cosmos of gold is bursting beneath the surface of the clay. Now, it's almost 3D, it looks infinitely deep, but the bursts are coming out like starlight. Now, how do you do that in clay? <laughs> yeah. And how do you paint on that and make the color and the paint, whatever it is that you're painting, like a giant red fire dragon with this bursting starlight behind it? It's, it's fascinating. If, if anything, I hope listeners and viewers just go to Google, go to Google Images, type in Rookwood, <laughs> and just start looking. And I tell you, it's, it's hard not to fall in love with it. If I were a multimillionaire, all you'd see behind me here, these pieces yeah. of Rookwood lined up. This whole room would be filled with them. I, it's very wonderful handcrafted art. You're enjoying my conversation with Bob Batchelor about his book, Rookwood, the rediscovery and revival of an American icon and illustrated history. By all means, pick up the book. I know he said you can do it on Google, but no fair cheating there. You're not going to get the full experience, certainly, of him and also all the people that he interviewed here to write those sidebars, to give us insight into this all-American story. This woman was a pioneer, certainly, Mariah, and you get to know her through her pottery and to think about something as, as simple as a, as a cup, right? You know how fragile pottery can be. The fact that people cared about it for 140 years and wanted to keep it around and that they treasured it and passed it down from generation to generation it gives you an idea of how important it was and the longevity speaks for itself. You can visit Bob at bobbachelor.com or at his Instagram and Facebook pages. And you can just go to his website and navigate through there and find where he is, where he is on social media, get a look at what he has to say about some of these items. He mentioned that Facebook group, for instance, if you're really going to get into Rookwood, and I could see a lot of people once they pick up, Rookwood will want to learn more and maybe get into it. Maybe they have a piece in their house. Maybe next time you're out and you see that squirrel candy dish at a garage sale or a flea market, you'll you want to pick it up and check it out. The very poetry of pottery, the poetry of art, the very poetry of what we look for in our homes. We want your home to be somewhere you walk in and see something really beautiful. And that's what I felt about Rookwood. Rookwood has many people who are huge aficionados of it. One of them is Harry L. Rinker. He's a national antiques and collectibles expert. He writes the weekly column Rinker on Collectibles. He wrote, I am impressed by Bob Batchelor's Rookwood, The Rediscovery and Revival of an American Icon. It's a wonderful book. He has taken the story and personalized it. There are so many pieces that I've never seen before in other books. Bob provides far better appreciation for Rookwood than in any other Rookwood book I've read. It's a great contribution to the literature. And I thought that that was incredible, Bob. I'm surprised that your head can fit here in the Zoom because that's <laughs> such a huge compliment from somebody so knowledgeable. I know when I do an interview and I'll bring up a point about one of the subjects in these books back here and the author hasn't heard it, I'm kind of puffed up. I'm glad I was able to share that. I, I showed I know something that, that this author didn't. Here, you go to somebody who's an expert and, it, and you've, you're showing him things he hasn't seen. Such a credit to you as a researcher and the way you pursued these stories. Where did you go digging to find pieces? And 
you, you said almost a thousand photographs, right? A th- almost a thousand pieces. Mm-hmm. How do you go about whittling those down? And are there any that you heard that existed at some point, but it were lost to time or broken that you wish you'd have been able to include in Rookwood? Yeah, that's a great point. And I'm very thankful that Harry was uh, so generous in his comments. I think it comes back to me being a cultural historian. I just look at the world. I don't look at the world as you know, one thing as somebody who likes literature, likes history, or likes sociology, or likes film, like so many people get stuck in a, in a lane. I want to write across all the lanes. And <laughs> nice. this story enabled me to do that because Rookwood's rise and fall and rebirth and, and what's happening is impossible to understand if you don't understand the context. If you don't understand how the Great Depression impacted small business... Yes then you can't understand Rookwood. And if you don't understand how Cincinnati was changing and its battle with Chicago to be America's second city. So whereas most people try to stay an inch wide and a mile deep, I try to bring in the broadest possible perspective because I'm trying to get the human story out. And the one thing that I am sad about is that Rookwood did not market its artists like we would today. So if Kataro were alive today with his art in museums all over the world, he'd have a podcast, he might have a TV show, he'd have written a bunch of books. He'd have the but column, the, right? Not Harry, yeah, he'd have the, the column too. <laughs> the, the artists back then were not the focal point. They didn't talk about the artists in their marketing material. So as a result, it's not as if these artists left behind papers. I mean, they're almost normal, quote unquote, normal people who just went to their work and, and displayed amazing artistic creativity. And so what I had hoped while I was writing the book, and I kept putting feelers out to people, is I hoped that somebody in their attic or somewhere would have a box. Okay, so these, this is a box of letters from yeah, Kitaro, nice. <laughs> you know, talking about being the first Japanese man to live in Cincinnati, really maybe the first Japanese in this area at all. But that stuff just doesn't exist. And it's just Mm. completely different way of thinking about celebrity and marketing that even into the 1920s, a lot of these people kept a low profile. And I was sad about that. So I had to work extra hard to bring out what I could find. And so reading thousands and thousands of newspaper articles to dig out pieces of information that nobody else had run across. And so what I hoped to do was create a book that Rookwood fanatics and aficionados would find things that they enjoyed, but also for people who just like a good art history story or just want to know more about this region, they could also find something to enjoy about the book. So I was walking that fine line the entire time. I've had a couple people tell me that they think this is the best writing that I've done in my career. Wow. And, you know, you, you like to think that you're always getting better. So I'll take that. Yeah. But it's <laughs> interesting because it's primarily an illustrated history. But the words matter and the words are important. The main point of your question about were there pieces, I would say there are some of those tiger eye. So it's tiger eye, the, the bursting And then there's a couple other glazes that I know people have in private collections. And I wish that we could have photographed them because they're so rare. The tiger eye, 
I've actually talked with a Rookwood current day chemist and she showed me the recipe for the tiger eye. And the reason they can't recreate it today fully is because they use strange notation. It was as if they were trying to keep it secret. And then <laughs> I think they used some substances that you can't put in pottery anymore. Ah, Probably some makes sense, uranium yeah. or something. I mean, there <laughs> yeah, was some, might have been cobalt. Didn't they use cobalt? Yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> there some were some points, things in yeah. there, yeah, that, that, that you couldn't get past OSHA today. So. Yeah, no way. Nor would you want it in your house, much less be eating out of it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Lead. The old Rookwood factory is up on Mount Adams in Cincinnati, and it's still there. And in the, I believe the 70s and 80s, somebody came in and turned it into a restaurant. Now it's hmm. amazing because they have these giant beehive kilns and they're probably 15 feet high and 15 feet wide. They set up tables inside those kilns so that people could eat wow. in sitting in the kiln. <laughs> and I was talking to somebody else that I can't believe people would go in there. The, the amount of trace chemical yeah. material that must've been in those, True. It, it would probably set a Geiger counter off. Uh, but um, <laughs> you know, they're still there. People were eating there. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. I was thinking uh, I was down in Flemington, New Jersey. I'm not sure if that's exactly where the, the town was, but we pulled into a parking lot, my wife and I, and she said, what, what were these, those big towers? They look like a little miniature nuclear reactor. It was a kiln. I said, how great, because I'm going to talk to Bob Batchelor about his book on Rookwood. And so uh, it's, it's something similar, no, except that nobody's inside. It's just people outside the brick. The, you think of the sarcophagus there in Chernobyl, right, where every, everything, fortunately, will not leak out of that one. But I just thought, what a great thing to be able to keep there. I was wishing I had your, your book with me. I guess that's why I should carry it at all times. I carry <laughs> a copy so that I could whip it out and then take some pictures near there. But they had their, their farmer's market set up around it. So there wasn't really a photo opportunity. But one thing that you mentioned was you said chemist. And when you said chemist, we all have an image in our head, right? And I was picturing my high school chemistry teacher who, you know, the white jacket and, and you know, the, the stern manner. And you think of these uh, old fellows with white hair but then you said she, so the, so that jumps out at me. And I realize we've not mentioned much about the enduring legacy of Mariah to have a female-owned business and then one that in posterity is also run by women. Today, it's Marilyn J. Scripps, who is the current owner of Rookwood Pottery. And she wrote the introduction for Rookwood, yet more praise from the people that know. I want people to know out there who probably haven't heard of Rookwood and don't own a piece that... I'm coming at this just like you, where when I, okay, I knew what the kiln was. I saw that scene in Ghost, I guess. And, and I have some, some cups that are pottery, but I just want everybody to know you will enjoy it just as much. And here's another, here's another very human angle that explains it's about much more than just people who are, are very interested in this one kind of pottery or come from Cincinnati. Uh, she says, does Ms. Scripps, that there aren't many firsts that go on also to become symbols of durable longevity. So I thought that that was really insightful. What, what insights are you getting from the people that are working there now that carry on this legacy to the current day? Well, let me tell you, people love Rookwood today. And when readers pick up the book, they'll see Rookwood had its ups and downs. I mean, it had to adapt just like any other small business. And particularly when you're dealing with changing times and changing tastes and the Great Depression and the 50s and mass consumerism. I mean, 
I was at one of the big box hardware stores the other day, and I saw a plant potter that was made of plastic that from 10 feet away, you would have thought it was worth thousands of dollars ceramic. It was $4. So, I mean, the world's changing. But thankfully for Rookwood today, the world's changing back. People love handcrafted. They love artisanship. And Rookwood still excels in quality. And so they have people making art pottery. They still make tile. Their tiles considered some of the best in the world. So people today, when they remodel their kitchens or their bathrooms, they're able to use Rookwood tile. Buildings, when companies remodel and they find that they had a Rookwood fountain, like a water fountain, a hundred years ago, they're able to kind of recreate that now. So it's really a really cool thing. I've stood in public demonstrations with Lauren and Morgan, who are the hand throw experts at Rookwood now. And I've seen crowds gather and people's smiles light up like it's Christmas morning (laughs) because there's just something magical about that pottery wheel spinning and watching an artist. What's the, what's hand throw? Hand thrown is when you actually take the pound of clay and you start to mold it into something. So that's hand thrown as opposed to, now this is an interesting thing as well. Rookwood makes everyday wear as well. Um, Two years ago, they came out with a very unique charcuterie board, and it was designed by hand, but then they they have a mold for it, and and it presses, a a giant machine presses the clay into the mold, but it's still hand-painted, and it has to be run through quality control. So just like in 1880 or 1890 or the early days, today, if you buy a piece of Rookwood, either everyday wear or hand-thrown piece, at least a dozen different hands have touched that piece. I mean, it really is the definition of handcrafted. And Rookwood has a production force of people who are specialists in chemistry, in clay. I mean, you get these bags of, I mean, the the clay comes in and and the chemicals that have to be mixed in and involved. It's still a heavy-duty process and so it takes a team. It's still majority women, right, that work there? Majority women. Marilyn Scripps is the caretaker of the legacy, and she owns the company, and it is predominantly run by females. And that's a great thing when you can look at Rookwood today, and it's probably 70 plus percent female employees. That's unheard of in the modern world for a manufacturing company. So just like Mariah employed female artists at a time when female artists had very little, in some cases, no way to explore their creativity. Today, Rookwood is giving jobs and putting money into the economy for a female workforce. So it's, 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 an, it's a great legacy, actually. And it's, it's one of the reasons why I'm happy that, that Marilyn contributed that forward, because she really does see herself as a caretaker of the legacy. She had a Rookwood fireplace in her home growing up. Wow. And nice. so, you know, <laughs> she feels that legacy deep in, in her soul and, and it's important to her. And this is an important company still today for this, for this region. And it's one of the reasons why I think more people should know Mariah's story and certainly more people should know Rookwood's story because in the height of its era from 1890 to 1930, Rookwood was 
as we would think of Tiffany today, or maybe even bigger, maybe the way we think of Nike today. Everybody in the world knew what Rookwood was. And so it's, it's just shocking to me that, that it's not as widely known today. And when I say, wow, nice to having a Rookwood fireplace, I mean that she has that connection, not just that to me, when you know, when you look at art, right, even though it's nice to look at those pieces on eBay and imagine what the connection is, there's that idea of historicity, uh, as they call it, in the, there's an antique dealer that runs throughout, not the current man in the high castle that, that was just on Prime, but the original novel and talking about how here's a lighter that is just a lighter, but here's an identical lighter, but this lighter was owned by Kaiser Wilhelm or whoever it was. And say, what, what, there's no difference between them. And yet this one has this ephemeral item of, of history in it. Of course, this is not what you're speaking about there. This is actual craftsmanship. The term craftsmanship, or I guess craftswomanship in this case of yep. Rookwood, and the word evolution, two things that come up again and again. And you think about the years that you just mentioned, that time frame. 1890 to 1930. Think about how much changes in the world. We have, we have the Great Depression. We have the world wars throughout. These are all throughout Rookwood, not that narrow area, but in the last 140 years, certainly we have three just presidential assassinations. We, we have flight. We have then man landing on the moon. We have all these things that go on. Any one of them could destroy a business and yet they endure. And I just think that that's, that's so impressive. And that's what, what I think when I look at it, I say, how, how do you endure and have people who are willing to carry on your legacy? Because it would be so easy to just give up on it and things go bad. People make bad investments. There's Ponzi schemes. There's floods. You're, you're on a river there in Cincinnati. And I joked and said WKRP, but you pick up this book and you say, maybe if you're not from Ohio or from the Cincinnati area or the Midwest, how much can we really keep in our minds? And when we hear a town, we think, of this one thing. You think of Seattle, you think rain. You think Chicago, maybe you think of the, the Tessier's Tower, you think of the Bears, think of the lake. You don't have a lot of room for something like beauty. And for me, this, this really changes how I look at the city and it gives us such an inspiring story as readers to enjoy out of Rookwood. Yeah, it's a pretty amazing story of perseverance and, and how important art is. And I still believe that art is hugely important to us as human beings. And uh, I mean, not only in, in just brightening our lives, but, but giving us something to aspire toward. And my wife, Suzette, and I own about, because somebody asked me, so I had to count. We own about a dozen Rookwood pieces, and most of them are from the new Rookwood. We love Lauren and Morgan's work and what they do. And you could go on Rookwood right now and buy a piece of hand-thrown art pottery made by Morgan or Lauren with their two hands. And, and so to me, carrying forward that legacy. But probably my favorite piece is they took some of the old molded pieces that were made by famous artists. And Kitaro, I keep mentioning him over and over again because he's, he's the, the, the highest attainment of Rookwood. Kitaro Shira Yamadani, the first Japanese uh, to live in Cincinnati, uh, one of the greatest American artists who unfortunately is basically unknown or very little known. He would make not only his art pottery, but he would create molds so they could make production pieces. And so he made a Shira Yamadani monkey and it's just a little monkey paperweight. It's about this big <laughs> and it's in this beautiful red, almost like the red of, on the book, this color of red this Shiradami, Shira Yamadani monkey 
and it's just a little paperweight. But every time I walk by that thing, I just feel a little sense of pride and happiness. And, <laughs> you know, it just bright, it brightens my day. It just, yeah. uh, it makes me, it makes me happy. And knowing that I have, he didn't actually make it, but he created the mold and modern Rookwood updated it and it's beautiful. And, uh, I, I just love it. So I, I think art still has such an important place in our lives. And, and one of the reasons I wanted to, to do this book and do it as an illustrated history, because my publisher Quarto is one of the very best in the world at doing these kind of books. So I knew that they would uh, blow it out of the water. And the first time I actually held the book was when it was published because of COVID, I'd only seen it in PDF. And the book is 11 by 11. I'd only seen it on my screen and you can't really get it to fit properly when you pull up uh, as a PDF. So the first time that I saw this book and held it in my hands, I, I was flabbergasted. I mean, and I've seen all these pictures a thousand times, but they pop out at you in such a, a beautiful way in the book. So I'm really happy that Cordo did such a great job. And I had, you know, this team of worldwide experts to help me go from a thousand images down to, to 300. So it's, it was a team effort and, and, and a lot of people's fingers, just like a dozen people um, touch each piece of Rookwood that's made, more than a dozen touched this book to, to get it made. I, I'm just lucky enough to get my, my name on the, on the cover. <laughs> well, you did a lot of that hard work that goes into pottery and also then that goes into writing a book. And I think that if you pick up a piece of pottery, you can admire a piece of art for its own sake, but how great to be able to pick it up now. And that's why I asked you that question about what you feel and think all the way back to 1876, right? You mentioned the world's fair that, that they had. And so, you know, expositions, they used to call them. And she says, I don't like the state of things. I don't like the, the state of the, of the American pottery available to me. Hey, I'm going to go and I'm going to use my means and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it here, make a name. And then just from that, and, and that, that adds a layer to how much you would be inspired by beholding something that's a beautiful piece of Rookwood pottery. I want yeah, to ask. It's, um, it's, it's amazing that the thing that, that most people don't realize, th there wasn't much American art back then. I mean, everything that was quote unquote artistic was imported in and people used to really criticize. I mean, there were people that thought, hey, America is a growing nation. We need to have a growing cultural foot as well. We, we should be able to compete with Europe. And so the art actually goes almost hand in hand with the way that America developed militarily, diplomatically and economically but it had to start somewhere. And what people don't realize is that Rookwood was one of those uh, foundational pieces of forming art that was truly American art in America that could be looked at by Parisian art experts and say, yes, this, this is on par. And in Rookwood's case, better than what we can do. So, I mean, it's so quintessentially an American story but we don't, we take it for granted today. We think, well, America was always strong militarily. America was always dominant economically. We always had this culture, but we didn't. It had to start somewhere. And, and the book is, is part of that Genesis story of American art. I have time for a final question. And you 
were very helpful in what you wrote in the book because it made it made it very easy for me to phrase these. So I like to quote you back to yourself. You write about how history helps us, quote, gain insight about how we might live fuller, more engaged lives, and that art is a critical foundational facet of a well-lived life. So you've explained a little bit about what you offer in the book and about why people should pick up art. We've talked about the tangible things. When I talk about somebody, say, about a president, you're not going to go grab one and stick him in the the corner of your house. Although, if you remember Louis Pacone's book, he talked at length about how they tried to try to grave rob various presidents, including Benjamin Harrison. And uh, hey, he would look good in that corner, uh, you know, Benjamin Harrison. They were actually going to, this goes back to the Bourbon King here. They were going to, they were going to ransom his body for a, a gangster. So stories like that, you only pick up by reading things in history. Here we have something so beautiful, such a wonderful legacy. Why should readers pick up a copy and let that legacy of this great American female owned and run company bring beauty to their lives? Well, I think that uh, people like stories that aren't the run of the mill story. And, you know, even though I love Lincoln and Lincoln's history, I don't need to read every new Lincoln book comes out. And, and there is one that seems every four months. <laughs> Pretty much a day. Pretty much every day. Yeah, almost every day. <laughs> but there are important stories that still need to be told. And Rookwood is one of those stories. It is a story about female empowerment. It's about a story about the creation of art in America. It's a story about how the Midwest develops. It's a story that encompasses every aspect of American history. I mean, even during World War II, they're making, uh, Rookwood's people didn't know it. It was top secret. The people were making these bomb tripwires didn't know what they were making, but they were making the bomb, uh, the switch wire for the bombs that won World War II. And so this story has such tentacles into the rest of American history. It's a beautiful cycle of Rookwood and history evolving together as America grows and changes. And to me, uh, that's worth the price of admission alone. And the book, it's worth the money that you would pay for it just for the photographs. Because I tell you, when you, when you pick this up and look at it, the art is phenomenal. And we try to tell the story through the pictures. We tell the story in the narrative. Um, I just think there's a lot to be learned and a lot still to be learned about the, the intricacies and the details of American history and some of our great leaders that for various reasons were never given their just due. And in this era of female empowerment, Mariah Longworth Storr is a, a leader that people should know, and she should be studied more frequently. So how's that for a sales pitch? <laughs> yeah, well, I asked you to make your pitch, and, and you did, and it's a, it's a very efficient one. And I hope people will pick up the book, and not because I like you, Bob, and I want you to sell a book, and not because I just feel it's my job. I, I don't get paid to push Bob's books. He's not, he's not kicking anything up to me. It's just because I think it's beauty. And if we can give the gift of beauty, why not give it? If we can bring something beautiful into our house, I guess we don't have newspapers anymore, but we certainly have TVs that there's enough grisly, horrible images on there and things that are not beautiful. So why not pick up a copy of Rookwood, bring that beauty into your home. I guarantee you'll find yourself flipping through it. 
Thank you, Bob, so much for joining me again. I can't wait for your next book. I, I can't imagine where your career will take you next, but I know it will be an entertaining, interesting story. Thank you for reintroducing us here to Mariah. I feel that we are on a first name basis with her because she is still alive with us here, 140 years plus probably 100, what, 144 from when she was first inspired to create this great American art form. Thank you so much for your time and for Rookwood. And on behalf of Mariah, thanks for just taking all those pictures and going through that editing and trying to bring that beauty into a form that can just sit right there on your coffee table. Thank you, Dean. I really had a fun time today. I appreciate it. Again, the name of the book is Rookwood, the rediscovery and revival of an American icon. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the historyauthor.com page for this episode. By buying a book through us, you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine spinning like usual, just like those pottery wheels at Rookwood have been spinning for 140 years. My thanks to Bob Batchelor for joining me today and also for joining me via Zoom. And people seem to be more comfortable with it today, so that's why I'm starting to use it rather than just audio interviews. Thank you for subscribing on our YouTube channel and for clicking like and just enjoying these videos because I don't have any illusions that people want to see me. Maybe they want to see a little Kermit the Frog, but not me. So <laughs> I just do these because people like to watch things. And hey, if you enjoy it and if it helps Bob to have his great books come to a wider audience, the same goes for my other authors I have on, then I'm more than happy to do it. Remember to check out my previous interviews with Bob Batchelor. Those are about his books, The Bourbon King, The Life and Crimes of George Remus, Prohibition's Evil Genius, and also The Man Behind Marvel. Those are both excellent books as well. If you're looking to buy something any time of year, not just around December, I would highly recommend a Bob Batchelor book. You're going to get a great read. Remember to visit him at bobbatchelor.com. And you can follow me at History Dean on Twitter, find me on Facebook, and also on Instagram if you're looking for some great history. I like to revive people like Mariah. Look at that, we're on a first name basis now, and share her. And I just think history is so inspiring. I wanna share that belief with you. And I hope I did my job today. Certainly Bob Batchelor did his. Now I promised you a few comics because we talked about the man behind Marvel, Stan Lee. Now Stan Lee, the man behind Marvel is the title of the book and it is excellent. This is a Stan Lee comic. This is a reprint of the very first Incredible Hulk. You can see there. Now what makes him different than Superman who I showed at the beginning of the interview who is a DC comic? Well, Incredible Hulk has problems, right? He's has anger. He has a duality of his personality. And you get that from Bruce Banner, who's mild-mannered, and then he just snaps. He becomes the Hulk. And so that wasn't a perfect guy like Superman is. Iron Man, Iron Man's an alcoholic, right? He has problems. He certainly has problems with his parents. These are all flawed characters with problems. Nobody is more flawed than the very first one that people yelled at Stan Lee about at the publisher. They didn't want him to make it. Nobody wants to hear about spiders. Spiders are ugly, they're horrible. People hate spiders. Well, this is a relaunch of Spider-Man. I bought all three different copies. For those of you who aren't watching on the YouTube channel, 
one is gold, one is silver, and one is just a regular comic book font. And they did that to sucker people like me into buying multiple copies of the same issue that we didn't know the internet was going to come along and the bottom would fall out of comics. Stanley made all those because originally he had the X-Men, or Marvel did, and he said, you know, how many mutants can you have? After the radioactive spider, he said, you know, you can have as many mutants as you want. You can only have so many radioactive spiders. So he got tired of, or rather felt the limitations of, of writing characters that would have some weird, crazy mishap. Ah, speaking of mishaps, Fantastic Four. Now I cannot afford a first edition, or I choose not to, of the Fantastic Four, but it's cool that it is a reprint with the ads and everything. You see Joe Atlas there. And right here, it's signed by Stan Lee and the great Jack Kirby. So that's that's pretty cool. You can see some of the some of the ads there if I hold it just right. Forgive me for looking at the camera. That's my uh, Nathan Hale. I'm sorry, Alan Hale. I'm a history guy and thinking of Skipper on Gilligan's Island at the same time. But anyway, those are just a few comics there. This was before all of you found out about it. Some of you anyway. This was living in my attic before they made that great Marvel movie out of it. So those are just a few comic books and I hope it whets your appetite because this is what I brought to my interview with Bob Batchelor. And that's him saying it, not me, that I was somebody who knew a little bit about comics. Well, maybe more than a little bit. This is just a fraction of the ones that I have. And so Bob and I talked a lot about Stan Lee and I loved making Stan Lee come to life for my, my listeners, now my viewers, just as Bob did in the book, Stan Lee, the man behind Marvel. He wasn't just a guy that did those cameos and everybody cheered in recognition. The way he fought for things like Spider-Man, his vision to have people that had hangups, to have characters rather, I say people because he brought them to life, but to bring to life characters and have them be relatable. That's how he made the family of the Fantastic Four relatable, right? Their family, they had problems. You have a brother and sister dynamic, a husband and a wife dynamic, and then you have the jilted friend that loves his best friend's wife. You know, those are all exciting things that make for real good storytelling. So I want to thank you for joining me. Thanks to Bob Batchelor for joining me. I hope that you'll be with us the next time we time travel into the past together. Thanks so much for everybody watching via YouTube or listening via iHeartRadio and iTunes. And I hope that you have a great week and you'll be right back here with us for our next trip into the past together. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.